Mate, this is going to be awesome. It's not stayed to come down for that one. Hit him, hit him. It's more than just a hobby, it's who we are. Cracker. That's why we hunt. Welcome to the Educated Hunter Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Ultimate OE. As most of you would know, Curran and I run a business called Ultimate OE. We specialise in sending young Kiwis and Aussies to Canada and Scotland to work in the hunting industry. Applications for next hunting season, so 2020, both in Canada and Scotland, are now open. As hunters, we're not often happy with inauthentic experiences. We're always looking for something adventurous, more exciting and more unique. Same goes for overseas experiences. We deliver once-in-a-lifetime opportunities working for the best outfitters in Canada and the best hunting estates in Scotland. Our train-before-you-go setup means that we can secure all the best jobs with the best employers, with the best people in the best spots, all ahead of time because they know you're going to turn up with the knowledge and skills to hit the ground running when you get there. If you're interested in an OE in Canada or Scotland next year based around hunting in the mountains, it doesn't get much better in my opinion. If you think you might be interested or just want to learn a little bit more about what we do, feel free to get in touch and get us on email at ultimateoemail at gmail.com. You can flick us a PM on Facebook or Instagram, either through the Educated Hunter or Ultimate OE pages. Either will work, whatever blows your hair back. Enjoy the show. Oh, I tell you what, I'm stiff and I haven't done anything. <laughs> Jesus, that could be taken out of context. Yeah, it could be. <laughs> Especially after three weeks in the bush. <laughs> we are fresh off the plane from Whitehorse this morning. Hold on, I'm just going to turn that fan off. Okay, and the other thing would be freshers are probably fairly loose Yeah, too. yeah, we're off the plane. <laughs> Being that there. I'm still in the same clothes, I've probably had on for a week. Not entirely fresh, or some of us aren't anyway. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've got a whole wardrobe next door there full of clean clothes, and I still haven't quite got around to utilising it yet, so it's almost like you don't want to let go. No, that's it. It's part of it. Yeah. Embrace it. But yeah, White Horse this morning, Watson Lake yesterday, got a late flight out of the mountains and then drove for five hours and mm. quick turnaround. Loaded. It was a nice drive down the... Oh, it was awesome, wasn't it? It was pretty... The, uh, really enjoyed... Because there was so many of those really nasty weather cells going through, which I'm sure will come up at some point in the conversation, but those really nasty cells that are sort of backed by clear stuff, mm. sort of against those mountains in that twilight. It was really, really pretty. It's probably one of the prettier times I've done that drive. Normally, mm. it's fairly mundane once you've done it once. Yeah, before. I've done it... I've done it, well, a couple of times in, in sort of that mid-September bracket... Haven't been fortunate enough just to stay in the mountains for the, the warm months and then come out, and it's real pretty because normally by the time you come out, all the leaves have gone. And mm. I couldn't believe the change in three weeks from when we went in, yeah. just in the how much the season had changed and the colour. And yeah, well, even from where we were in the mountains, you know, where we were hunting, we were in one of the higher camps. We're up at about fourteen hundred metres. Mm-hmm. You went from there, where all the leaves were basically gone by the time me and Curran pulled out. Fifty fifties. You know, you'd drop a, you know, about half again, so you're probably at about 800 metres there. Yeah. And, you know, it's still 50-50, and then when we got down on the highway, mm. a lot of those yellow leaves are still hanging on. Mm. 
So it's it's amazing how much it varies, even just coming down off the mountain, the essentially. Yeah. And then now we're back in Vancouver. The trees haven't even turned yet; they're still green. Mm. If you look outside the window, there all those that are sitting mm. trees in the back there. They they haven't even started to turn. So yeah, it's been an awesome couple of weeks, really, hasn't it? We yep. had all these intentions of doing podcasts in the mountains. We did try one; it fell a bit flat. So we're having another. I think the boys are a bit worn out, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, it didn't sort of quite seem right sitting in the hut around the table, getting all formal. No, didn't hit the mark. So, it? yeah, we'll we'll supersede that one with this deluxe model. Yeah. So, I mean, for those who uh, I guess haven't heard what we were planning, we have come into this. Uh, Dad came over from New Zealand, so did Current. Met me here in Vancouver, and we went away for a a moose hunt for Dad's sixtieth. It was a, a big bucket list tick for me um, to hunt with Dad here in North America. It's sort of a, been a big chapter of my hunting and professional life. And then second box was try and find a, a sheep for Curran, which was, you know, probably equally as important to you. Mm-hmm. How has the like just explain why I guess why a stone sheep trophy would be important to you, Curran? Because I think it's. Yeah, it means a lot. I know it means a lot to you. But yeah, it certainly I... does. And it's been raised on the podcast before that a stone sheep is, is I guess, for me, my premium trophy. Um, and it means a lot to me. There's, I guess, a couple of big contributors to that. Um, firstly, the fact that they're not easy. <clears throat> that, you know, like when you make mistakes, you ruin, you genuinely ruin your opportunities. Like so, you you've got to be smart about what you do. Um, the environment they live in is obviously high. Um, with that comes weather. With that comes variation of elements. And you know, on this particular trip, wind was probably our biggest issue. It was hard to see what we needed to see in the wind. And then, I guess the more emotional side of it is probably. I get. I get. You know, it's a, it's a pretty tough word to say and use, but almost a closure on my time in the mountains of Canada. Yeah. Like, so I've obviously spent time guiding the stone sheep and have been part of a lot of successful hunts with a lot of great people. It was that involvement that turned what, as a young, typical Kiwi, sounded like a completely absurd event in going sheep hunting transpired an addiction to sheep hunting so it's not that i want to go and i guess acquire the grand slam of sheep or anything on that behalf but i certainly would love a stone sheep i would love it like i say to i guess maybe put an end or a one of the last chapters on that stage of what i've done and 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 the enjoyment i've had but also i guess to test myself in the mountains and like we've discussed during this last week that basically I just need to do it myself in the mountains physically. Yeah. Mm. And I, I understand that side of it too. When I did mine stone sheep a number of years ago, it was pretty important to me that, you know, yes, I had some really good guys with me and they always contribute to the hunt, but it's, I don't know, it's, it probably is a Kiwi thing to be able to say that, you know, you're there, you're the one actually physically doing the hunting and, and making mm. a lot of the decisions, whether you're the physical guide or not, mm. you're part of that hunting team. And that's, I don't know, it's probably a Kiwi thing. Like, I guess from a guiding perspective, we see a lot of clients come over who, 
you know, they're along for the ride, right? So yeah. they, and they'd be the first to admit it a lot of the times. So they've never hunted mm-hmm. in that area before and they're relying heavily on the guide to where to go, how to do it, all that kind of stuff. Because we've been on that side, it's important to us that we, we're the ones making those decisions and having that experience. It's mm-hmm. it just, they're all little elements that add to the overall hunting experience. Yeah, and I think there's obviously a underlying desire for me to keep my mountain hunting whilst I still can and keep it quite explorative. Yeah. So, you know, I and you, you'd never sheep hunted in the area itself. No, no. Um, so literally fly across the world, end up back in the same boots I left in New Zealand and then set free to go and find a sheep. Like, it's a pretty, well, when it comes together, it'll be a pretty rewarding uh, outlay of time and energy. We'll get me. into your sheep hunt. Yeah. Probably second half of this podcast, I think. Yeah. I think it's a great story in itself. But flick it to Dad for a second. We just heard about Curran, how his, you know, his whole journey. When we suggested the idea of a 60th moose, what went through your head? Uh, it was interesting, yeah. So I guess um, as a Kiwi, you look across here and think, well, what would I like to go and hunt? And for me, the the sheep was never really something in my mind. Now that I've been here and sort of seen what that involves and what that takes, I've certainly got a different perspective on all of that. But as a as a older Kiwi hunter, you you you're pretty focused on antlers. And when Matthew first suggested a moose, yep, I thought yeah, moose would, moose would certainly be cool. Can't get that in New Zealand, but also the area we went and hunted in has has some elk. And initially, I sort of thought, oh yeah, that's what I'd want a really really big elk. Um, but in the end, I got talked out of that um, largely because it's a bit too similar to what you can do in New Zealand. Let's come over here and do something totally different. So, yep, got pretty focused on the moose and um, did knew nothing stuff all about moose hunting. So, did actually do quite a lot of um, watching YouTube videos and what have you before I left. Watched heaps of recorded moose hunts just to sort of get a feel of how it was going to unfold and what was going to be important when it sort of came down to it um i think now having been over here if you're ever watching those videos um (laughs) they all focus on the very end um so you get sort of 15 minutes of the last part of that hunt and i think what they don't actually portray particularly well is the amount of work that has to go in before that in terms of actually locating a moose that you can actually shoot. So that's a massive difference between um, New Zealand and over here is this business of legality. Actually <laughs> <laughs> legality. Yeah, well, yeah, so whole different system in New yeah. Zealand. Okay, you go out in the raw you roar up a semi-good stag and you smoke it over and that's the end of the day. And if you're too far from camp, you whip out the back stakes in the head and go home. Let's face it, that's pretty much what happens. Um, but over here, it's it's all about sort of finding that right animal. And it took us several days. We were lucky that we landed in a time when there were a few cows cycling around our camp. 
And so there was quite a lot of activity. So initially I thought, oh, okay, this is how it is all the time. After two weeks, I realized that that isn't the case at all, that we were just quite fortunate that there was a bit going down when we arrived. And, you know... The, Slash, your guide had been there a couple of times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, <laughs> he sort of knew. But, it, but despite that, you know, a week later, it was like a moose desert. Yeah. So um, we had to sort of sit and do a lot of glassing, um, a lot of looking, a lot of waiting, a lot of calling, and eventually bull moose was starting to be seen. You know, naturally I saw the first one, thought he's gone down, um, and had to be called off because you know, I had no perception really of what was big and what was small. Everything looks big. So the boys sort of called me off uh, two or three, which was starting to get a bit Well, the, the first squirrely. couple, Ross, were purely due to, due to legality. Legality, it yeah. It wasn't a case of yeah. whether they were big enough. And that's, and that's another thing. So, yeah, you've got to look at the damn thing. And that whole legality around a moose is a, is a, a very interesting um, setup. Yeah. I mean, to put some context on it from a guiding perspective – you know, the legality thing is a pretty big part of what you have to do in British Columbia. Yukon, there is no legal size for moose. You just try and shoot the biggest one you can, which certainly takes the pressure off. But when you start putting um, parameters around what's legal and what isn't, so for an elk, it has to have six points on at least one side. Um, the definition of a point is very strict and defined. So a little bump doesn't count as a point. So when you're talking about moose... Um, they need to have three brow tines on one side or 10 points collectively on one side. Uh, and when a moose gets old, what happens is their palms fill out and particularly the points on the top of their palms just become little knobs. So they don't count as points anymore. And if that genetic makeup of that bull means he's only got two brow tines in the front, you can have a very mature, dominant, bull who's getting all the cows and ruling the roost that technically isn't legal and if you shoot that bull it'll be confiscated you don't get to take it home as a guide i'll get a fine slap on the wrist if it happens too many times then i can lose my license so it's a it's you a, don't get a rebate you don't get a rebate <laughs> you buy your tags you pay mm. your money you know you still burnt the fuel flying in there you're still paying for everything else so it's a really different mentality going into it it's not there's a real process every time an animal is spotted that, you know, once you've been over there and, and particularly guiding that you go through before you let anyone get too excited. Even if it looks like a giant at first glance, it, you really have to make sure those boxes are ticked, particularly if you're hunting in clear stuff. I mean, we were lucky that we were above the timberline, well, subalpine, let's say, and there's a lot of gaps where you can really look. Mm-hmm. If you're lower down around lakes where the trees are tied up against the lake and you get a bull that, you don't see a bull for five days because that's generally what happens if you get stuck on a lake and in the trees and you see one moving through the trees, your guide has to assess it, make sure it's legal before you can pull the trigger. And if you've only got a couple of minutes window, it can get a bit stressful. So, yeah, it was... Uh, yeah, so we went through all that process of sort of assessing bulls, turning bulls down, what have you. Um, and because we were hunting around a lake on foot so totally unassisted the the other thing that really sort of was I was being told but rung home the minute we did kill one was the importance of where that bull drops 
relative to how your next two or three days pan out. Um, so uh, these two are pretty pretty partial to that bull dying near the lake. And so as a result, we didn't actually push any further than than sort of hunting the periphery around the lake. So we were just going back and forward spotting pretty much in the same areas. Um, and again, not knowing how it all worked, I was actually very pleasantly surprised to see new bulls turning up on the scene. You sort of look and you think, okay, so it's like at the back of the farm, you know there's a couple of good stags out there and you see them all the time. Um, but there were the, the bulls travel and you, you've always got that hope that a, a, another big fella is just going to turn up the next time you go out and look. And that's effectively what happened in the end. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple of key points there. I mean, we'd obviously be no surprise to anyone who knows me and Curran, or even Dad for that matter, that the hunt we did was, you know, using connections that we've made in the industry and we did it pretty bare bones, which meant that we didn't have, you know, any... I was guiding, but I was there as part of the crew, so that takes some cost out of it. You know, we paid for the flights, but there were no horses, which are a... When you're moose hunting in the mountains, are a pretty massive asset. So, knowing that anything that hits the ground, you have to physically and legally backpack all that meat from the side of the hill to the lake, so it can be picked up by a float plane, and then the float plane takes it back to a place of processing. That's actually quite important. And that having the bulls and hitting it like we did, because I mean it's just like the red raw. Like you can. Say, you know, in the North Island, if you go over the week around the 8th or 9th of April, you got a pretty good chance of hearing some, seeing some action, hearing some action. And it varies around the country. And my experience in there is the, you sort of got two cycles of the big bulls moving. And we sort of turned up right at the right time because from the first day there was action at both ends of the lake really and like dad said those bulls are cruising and looking for cows but what happens is is when those big dominant bulls find cows and keep them they actually push them up high which Curran and I saw subsequently you know eight ten days later when we were sheep hunting we were way up in the high country and we were seeing bulls with cows push right up into the top so that like, we would never be able to backpack them out of those spots but that's where they were no we were a full day or even further Without carrying meat, yeah, to the lake, exactly over a day's carry with just yeah. our backpack. So it's, you know, that just becomes a. If you've got a team of horses, no worries. You know, that's when the horse teams really pay off because you can ride and get yeah. up high in glass, find a moose, go and hunt it, and then pack it onto a string of pack horses and get it back to camp, no problem. But if you're having to hump them out piece by piece using more manpower only rather than horsepower, it's, mm. it's just not an option. So, I mean, if we were still in there now, I would expect to He's see up again now. some big bulls starting to cruise again now. So you sort of get two opportunities of those big bulls. If you're anchored at the lake, those big boys are going to come through probably twice during the rutting yeah. season. Maybe not the same ones, maybe one from further down the valley. They just sort of play musical chairs with all the girls, I guess, and <laughs> change it up. And um, Yeah, so anyway, we... I guess we hunted for, what, three days? How many bulls did we see that we... Well, there was a few that weren't big enough, and then there was at least one we called you off that was legal, but yeah, how'd that make you feel? Oh, okay, because um, it was still early days. If it had been 
late in the piece. Um, I probably would have been getting a bit edgy. But, you know, he looked looked big to me. But, you know, now having seen a few, I can totally see why we didn't go after him. Um, but, yeah, the minute the one that he ended up shooting turned up, the you were going to struggle to pull me off that. I could see the difference even just in the antler colour and just the way he acted and the way he didn't even get to the cow and all the others cleared out. Um, it was pretty obvious that he was the man of the day. So, Yeah, he was pretty wise old bull because when we first seen him, he was cutting across lower down the creek and then he spent his whole time getting closer to the cow in the trees. Hmm. We sort of didn't see him for no. We're getting glimpses here and there, and he was coming and coming, and he knew exactly where he was coming from. Like we couldn't have asked for a better setup, really. Like it was pretty cool. We had cow and a calf, but it must have been an older, older calf anyway, because two year old, two year old calf, Mm -hmm. and the bull that was with her when we arrived, you know, at first light was um, a smaller bull that we'd seen a few days previous. Mm And he was sort of mucking around in there. And what happens with moose is the the bull's grunt, which is a whoa noise particularly. Well, there was another bull coming from the other end of the lake grunting. Exactly. So we had that. We had the young bull with a cow. And we had, but she, he was mucking with her. But So you get the bulls grunting. And when the cows, well, the cows will also call, which is a, a tool in your arsenal during the rut. And the cows will call for two reasons. They'll either call because there's no bulls around and they want to get bred, um, or they have what they call it sort of a more distressed call, slightly more high-pitched and whiny, um, if they've got a young bull chasing them around that's ticking them off. And that noise tends to attract bigger bulls. So on that particular morning, I didn't have to do any calling because you had a, a cow there who was getting chased by a small bull. She was whinging and calling. The wind was heading down off the end of the lake, plus all that noise was bringing a ball from the other end of the lake. So it was all sort of happening in front of mm. us. We didn't have to do bugger all. Mm. Yeah. Well, it played out as a, one would hope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Mm. And I, mean, I guess it's worth mentioning at this point, it was me, Dad, and Curran, and then we were actually lucky enough to have my little brother, Jack, along for the ride as well. He was uh, has been working up at that outfit for a couple of months or a month doing a building project so the outfitter was actually good enough to fly him over for the first portion of the hunt at least um, which was really really cool so special for me him obviously little brother and the old man there for a moose hunt but he was um, with us on the morning even more special for me when we had to carry it yeah that was brilliant actually the the one Mm -hmm. stipulation when Darwin said he might fly Jack over was to make sure he brings a pack frame Yeah, so the old bull sort of came in and started chasing around and hooking into the car, into the calf, trying to get it out of the way. And we'd worked, we'd been up on a bit of a hill, and we left Jack and Curran up there doing a bit of videoing. And Matthew and I headed down, got to try to get ourselves into a a better position to shoot. The trouble with that was we lost all our altitude, so suddenly that. Um, buck brushes it that they're kicking around in it gets a hell of a lot higher and it's hard to see so we made it to the sort of the last available tree and got ourselves set up in that tree um, just leaning up against it so I had a decent shot and really just had to wait until 
he worked himself into a shootable position and that sort of surprised me a wee bit because everything I'd seen and been told was you wait until the totally broadside but he just wasn't ever presenting that shot so ended up sort of straight in sort of semi-quartering but um, I mean, certainly it, did quartering on is a lot different from quartering away yeah so quartering on at least he, he, he took that full impact just mm. on the right on the ball when, the when you watch the video it wasn't a dramatic quarter either. Probably might have felt like that when you were doing it. Yeah. But when you the video, to be honest with you, I was looking at him through the camera in my binoculars, and it, it was close enough to side on to me that yeah. it wasn't yeah. even really an issue. So you look at the video, and it passes clear through his bread box. And well, and the when we took the skin off, like it goes in a shoulder and out of shoulder. Yeah. Like there's not much angle on there. No. Yeah, and I guess that was you know I wasn't quite expecting either that you know all the stuff I'd been watching looked like they were pretty close to these things call them I think you'd also spend a bit of time identifying where to shoot a moose yeah in terms of yeah I had yeah that was actually invaluable I'd certainly suggest that if you're coming over from New Zealand you just um, get looking at the uh, the moose stuff on Google and there's a really cool um, picture there showing the makeup of their skeleton inside their body and I tell you what it's seriously different to a red deer and that's quite useful to know where to place your shot it's much lower than you would on a deer because they've got that bloody great hump um and you sort of naturally think that the spine's following that but it's it's not and so you you, you're really probably placing it in the bottom third of the chest area than and and that that really paid off because that's where we hit him and it certainly did the trick trick, but Yeah, so I ended up having to shoot at sort of 380, 390 metres, which I wasn't expecting, but um, Curran had his gun gun just beautifully set up with all its flash little doodackies. All I had to remember was to dial it to the right doodacky, and yeah, away she went. So yeah, and I guess then making your way across to it and walking up to it, you know, you're never really quite prepared for the sheer mass of the things on the ground when you've been used to shooting red deer and what have you. Um, they are just a very large hunk of meat. And, um, you know, and the antlers sort of fall, yeah. They take you away. Um, look like he's about 75 inches to me. Didn't quite make that. <laughs> um, but no, I was really wrapped with the, really wrapped with the head. It was quite different to any other moose head I've sort of seen. Yeah, it's um, amazing how much they can vary given mm. that the structures you know, should be basically well, the same species, one area. But they all look so different. different. Mm. Yeah. So as a Kiwi, you know, old school Kiwi, we love our symmetry, we love our nice 12-pointer or our nice, nice even 14-pointer. So the big thing for me was he is very, very even either side, nine points either side, but just massive um, fronts. So he had the three three tines on both sides uh, out the front and then his next tine back was like a whop tine really wasn't it like a big long single tine before the palm so um, coming back through the airport today actually we've run into a lot of hunters and um, they're all pretty taken with it not because of its width which is what everyone talks about but basically because of its shape and its tines yeah it's a really really cool head like um 
I was as you was coming through the trees, you know, first he established that he was legal and then both me and Curran had spotting scopes set up and I was sort of, you know, in my mind thinking, What are we, day three? You know, got Curran wants to kill a shit. So I'm doing these sums in my head thinking, you know, what's gonna be a cutoff? And he sort of spun around and stuck his nose in the air winding. And when I saw those fronts come up out of the brush, mm. I was like, yeah, done. Yeah. Um, so because it was quite, I guess, for me, because I was also looking, Yeah. didn't have any of that emotion stuff. I just remember saying to you, he's legal. Yeah. Like, and then I was let you guys make those decisions. Well, I remember asking you, what do you think? And you said, mm, it's not up to me. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't quite like that. I said, I'm not here to make your decisions. And, yeah. and I meant that from a, actually a very respectful angle like you know i would hate yeah. it to have influenced you in any way you said, oh no nah, no nah, it's not got two sheets yeah, of pie or even on if i hesitated like oh i wouldn't want it like mm. how would that now sit with this conversation yeah, yeah like it would ruin almost everything from then well for me anyway i don't know you know mm. um, and that, that i guess that's coming from a guiding background like it's not the, the trophies in the eye of the beholder and if yeah. If it ticked your boxes, then it ticked your boxes. I mean, from a guiding perspective, you, you, there's a lot of things going on in your head, right? So your day three of a moose hunt, seeing good numbers of moose, you know, that comes into play. This is the biggest one we've seen so far. He's clearly dominant right now, so it could be two or three days before another big dominant one shows up, if at all. He has 200 got metres weather. from the water. He's <laughs> in a perfect place, 200 metres <laughs> from the water. We can sneak down there. Like I trimmed a few branches off that spruce tree and it was a decent rest. You know, wind was good, location was good, you know, it hadn't been any bears around yet. Video you know, was these, rolling. Video was rolling. There's all these things that, you know, come into your mind and suddenly it occurred to me that, you know, different to all the other moose hunts I've ever been on as a professional guide where you're getting paid and the client has, you know, paid a lot to be there and you don't know them personally yet um you know the motivations for doing what we're doing was slightly different mm. you know it was more about me and dad hunting in canada dad taking home a you know a moose to remember the whole experience by you know cherry on top was having jack i mean and you current there mm. all at the same time it's a pretty unique scenario so mm. at that point you got to ask yourself how much does four or five extra points and a few extra entrance really matter mm. and the answer 100 percent of the time is it really doesn't it really doesn't mm. matter. Once you've ticked the legal boxes, it's all about the experience and whatever you're happy yep, with. The emotive value. And I mean, as Dad said, like as we were progressively singing, seeing bigger moose, like every time we saw a bigger one, yep, yep. <laughs> yeah, there yep. was a few yeps. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yep. So, yeah, it was awesome. So we walked up to it, slightly bigger than you expected. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, all round, bigger. Um, the other thing that, I wasn't at all ready for was the smell. <laughs> um, they've got a unique smell. It's not offensive, but it's a totally different smell to um, anything else I've ever hunted. You know, it's a new smell, and that was sort of took, you know didn't take me back, but it was a surprise. No one had ever talked to me about how they smelled. Uh, and yeah, no, just no, very, very, very happy. And and since. Um, sort of wind forward a bit more on the trip um spent a few days in the skinning shed and seen a few other uh heads come in and you know there were bigger heads but there were none that i liked any you know i preferred mine over all of them so i felt very happy about 
um, what I'd got. So, yeah, and then one thing was for sure that they say, now the work begins, and it sure as hell did. Well, there was a wee intermittent stage there where we just about ruined the cameraman and the trip's life forever. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, that was part of the work as far as I was concerned, but, you know, I felt like Dan Carter. I thought I was going to have to strip down to my undies at one stage um, with the, for the photo shoot. So the photo shoot was pretty intense. Got underway while Jack legged it back to camp and uh, went and got the boat. He got back and we were still doing the photos, <laughs> which was just as well because I wanted him in some of the photos as well. But yeah, th- th- these boys with their history wanted some good photos. So, and again, that was a bit of a lesson. Um, but later in the trip, we'll probably get to that. I got a goat and uh, wish to hell we'd spend a bit more time getting some better photos of that. But, that is, the one thing, like, I'm not big on photos either, and being in photos. Mm. But the one thing you, you can't redo them. No, that's it's, right, and it's there. It's the on time. the ground once in the minute. We were chasing our tails time-wise, and we were. Now we'll get to all that, but we were fairly bare exposed. Um, so that process was a lot quicker. But I'm just so pleased we'd spend all the time on the moose getting some really good photos. What Curran was referring to throughout that process, um, Curran's. Uh, uh, feminine side came out and he was very artistic he was trying to lie on the ground underneath the moose and take arty shots up through the tines and um, he was passing the camera up to Matthew at some stage he was standing up over it I don't know what happened, someone got a strap caught on a tine or whatever but the big, what do you call the camera a big heavy bugger I call it yeah, yeah, my, my good DSLR yeah, so big fell. heavy bugger with a big you know, fella <laughs> Um, lens on it and stuff um, got dropped and skewered you, you couldn't have done it if you tried but fortunately it was the screen end and not the lens end but skewered the screen and completely poleaxed that so it didn't work at all and yeah there was a little bit of reflective time there for a while yeah while that, Matthew got over that <laughs> that camera uh, <laughs> has been all around the world with me and has been thrashed so I mean it just a law of averages at some point it was going to get busted but yeah I it, it was literally a, a transfer that I've done thousands of times oh, across yeah. the animal it's not a big deal and both me and Curran totally thankfully we're not playing for the All Blacks and Butterfingers it up <laughs> and it just skewered on the time so it smashed the screen so thankfully I'd spent probably an hour and a half the day before or the day before that getting all my settings correct um, and I've been playing around with it so much I could memorize the buttons I needed to push in order to get the the focus to work properly. Um, so from that moment on for the rest of the trip, I was taking photos blind just like you would be on a film camera. So it'd be interesting to see how they turn out. Mm. Um, it certainly made me have to concentrate a lot more on the composition as you were taking the photo. I, I'm not a natural cameraman, so I would my normal process is take a photo, see what it looks at, critique it, figure out what's wrong, and then retake the photo properly, whereas I was having to just freeball it. So I don't know. The, the quality of the pictures probably took a mild dive, but at the end of the day, we still got the pictures. Yeah. Well, pictures I think we've, seen, we've managed to see a few, and I guess dialing all that back and what happens beyond this point, like some of the moose photos we've got are cool. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, we yeah, have like definitely really cool. got some good so, ones. Yeah. yeah. I mean... Um, to go back to your original point about taking the time to take photos, 
like as Kiwis, we're not naturally pre-possessed to take photos of animals. It's a kind of a, um, you know, you, you feel like, particularly if you're around or your mates, we always feel up with showboating at some point, which just doesn't particularly go well in our culture, particularly in the circles that I run in anyway. Um, and it was, you know, an education that I had that it's always worth pushing the boundaries. And as a, as a guide going forward, it's probably the one issue that I will push my clients into doing that they really don't want to do. Mm. Often they will be very resistant and it's something that I will put my foot down and literally force them to do it, even mm. if they are grumpy at me. Mm -hmm. Because I know even if it's an hour later or the next day, they will always come to me and say, Matt, I'm really glad we took those photos. Yeah. I'm really happy with them. Yeah. So it's it's something that I always push for. Um, well, it's something the, that, the yeah. simple division, like for me, there's three of us, four of us on that hunt. Ross is going to have moose antlers on his wall. But yeah. I've got photos that we not far from equivalent. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. Yeah. So it puts everybody, memories. Yeah. everyone sort of has their part of trophy from mm. it. Yeah. So that was really cool. And then it's butchery time, which uh, you want to run us through that, Ross? I mean, we've done it a hundred times, so it's probably best coming from someone who's got a fresh perspective. Yeah, well, big event. I mean, I'd, I'd opted to... Um, watch. Go for a... <laughs> yeah, 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 watch. Oh, the, yeah, my back. Oh, hell. Um, no, no, I'd opted to go for a European um, to take home. So there was actually no need to do... A cape but um, the boys decided that they would do one anyway for a couple of reasons one they wanted to shoot a sort of instructional video for their training um, but two we thought it would be a good thing to um, take a, a cape back to give to as you know a, a, a feeble attempt of uh, something to give back for everything they'd given us um, so we set two and, yeah, they, they you know, start on one side literally because you've got no option um, and work the cape back, two or three blokes to roll the thing, work the other side. But the whole time, a lot of emphasis on um, where you're actually attempting to do that and keeping things clean because uh, pretty easy to get it all manky. So... Um, I guess yeah, that bring, no, I guess that brings us to the the fact that um, the huge huge difference between um, New Zealand and and over here in Canada is you have to take every skerrick of meat and I mean every skerrick of meat so not just a matter of whipping out the back steaks and saying oh yeah that caught us stuffed and whipping a couple well, we of eggs off and steak, out of here twelve kilo a back steak. Yeah, yeah, no, no, eight kilo, eight, eight, kilo. eight kilo per side. The back stakes oh. were when we weighed them, um, so that was my load uh, down to the boat. Two back stakes. Ross um, is one of those moose hunters with the smallest backpacks. I don't know how he managed to do it, but he had it. <laughs> um, but yeah, working your way through, it's basically like um, doing a home kill, really, with with a moose. Doing a home kill on a kettle beast without the aid of a um, front end loader on your tractor, really. So going through, taking the usual, so the the back stakes, we hit the um, fillet from the outside, um, saved us having to actually physically gut, get the guts out on the ground. Um, but it was the thing that blew me away was the neck meat. You have to take all the neck meat, and on a moose that was 
a serious lot of meat, like another load really, just in in the neck meat. And then setting two, and you either got to take the rib cage or the rib meat. So we actually, again, I think for the video purposes, did one side one way and one side the other way. But again, that's you know you'd you'd, you'd have a couple of old supermarket bags full of just trimmings in between the ribs. Um, so we yeah had a tarp laid out away from the animal, and as the bits came off, they were all laid out to cool um, and it was literally like a, a, a butchering process and, and at that point when um, Jack and I tried to pick up a hind quarter I realised why the hell you shoot them close to somewhere or a horse or something mm. but um, they, yeah, all the bits are seriously heavy yeah well I guess one little bit, bit I'll just add on there on process wise so we did the high side, the skin for the trophy, and then we removed the meat on that half of the animal before we rolled it. So mm. it took three of us to roll half a moose. Yeah, that's right. But we mm. yeah, took the meat off to allow it to roll a bit easier. So. And I just, you know, can't imagine how that process would pan out if the thing had dropped in the water, which seems to be relatively common. Uh, <laughs> that just would be no laughs whatsoever, I don't think, trying to do one in the water. But no, I think me and Curran can both speak from experience. Both, it's yep, it's not there. a not super happy fun times. Mm. No. So yeah, big day. Like it's a big day, and again, we were pretty pretty focused on trying to get the kill in the morning. And thank goodness we did. If you were faced with that, you know, and there's no doubt about it that there's no different over here. The activity is at first light and last light. Um. If you're unfortunate enough to shoot one at last light, you're in for a uh, pretty long night and a fair bit of windiness over bears, I would think. Uh, yeah, yeah. there's generally not a lot of trouble motivating a client to find firewood once it gets dark and you're still cutting up a moose. Yeah, yeah. They tend to be pretty proactive. I remember I had one guy, it must have been an Argo hunt because I distinctly remember him standing on the back of the Argo and I said, look, I'm going to keep working on this moose. He's one of these guys that just wanted to help, but just had hands really everywhere. Helping. You know, you're trying to cut mm. and suddenly his hands in the way. So it was just easier to do it on your own. And one of those on your own is a pretty big job. Mm. Big job. You know, advantage being Argo, you can lift a quarter into the back of the Argo and it's, it's you know, relatively well, easy. But I remember <laughs> I told him, that look, it's got dark, there's bears in the area, I need you to be vigilant and make sure you see the bears that got nice silvery green eyes they stand out quite well as Curran found out the other night mm. um, but he had a like a, a an old school sort of LED mag light type thing and he stood on top of the Argo and he was doing 365 degree turns <laughs> like, a like a lighthouse he was like bing bing <laughs> Bing, and it would have taken me three hours to do it and he didn't miss a beat he was that wound up he had his rifle on his shoulder and he was just going bing bing I felt safe as houses it was like having a watchtower <laughs> over your head mm. yeah yeah good on him yeah. yeah so I guess all that um, is, is probably points to the popularity of um, with the guides anyway of, of the um, sheep and the goats <laughs> well i guess even uh, at this lot, point a lot, lot less to deal with um you know totally different hunt a lot more physical was a figured out when we got to the go hunt but um yeah still they're, they're almost like 
pool of different experiences, I would say, if you were thinking of coming over. Uh, a moose hunt is really cool in its own right, and the way it all pans out is is quite a different hunt to chasing the alpine stuff. Mm. Uh, and if you're thinking of doing that, do it sooner rather than later would be my advice. Uh, it's certainly my, my, need, uh, need, need some legs and lungs. My key take from the, the day we got the moose was, I guess base, basically every stage you're like, right, we're done now. I was like, no, Ross, one mm. more stage yet. Mm. Oh, so this will be it then. Oh, you can take the head skin off well, the scale. No right, we're done then. Yeah, we ended up like, on no, the river Ross. with a goat. I kept saying, right, let's pack up and go. And Devin, I'll get to that story. I had a different guide at that point. But no, no, we've got to do this and we've got to do that. And I was like, oh, God. You're going to get out of here. You know, whip out the back stakes and drop kick it over the bluff. You know, can't do that. (laughs) No, can't do that. We uh, so we dragged it down. We're probably what two hundred, two fifty from the water, which is pretty respectable. I think my PB at that lake is just under two k, which was not a fun, super happy fun time. I (laughs) learnt from that experience. Um, I remember Darwin turning up and saying, where'd you get it? And me pointing at him, just shaking his head. So you'll learn one day, Matt. Mm. Which... Well, we'd already given ourselves an unwritten rule that we weren't going beyond a kilometre. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, a K would have been yeah. a, a much bigger job. Low last per minute, a K, I think. Yeah, well, we were close enough that we didn't have to pack any of the meat into backpacks. We could just take it. Put on our shoulders. Put shoulders up. And we'll put some photos up over the next couple of weeks of of us all packing out various bits and pieces, but, I mean, a back quarter on a moose would weigh what in kilos? Oh, I don't know, it's heavy, man. Oh, it's 60? 60, 60 to 70 60 kilos. 70 kilos with the bone in. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, you know... Once it's up ha- there, it's up there. You bone it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm. Once it's up yeah. there, it's up there, and if you keep the, the actual hock on, you know, they've got a nice little crook there that sits on your shoulder and you can hold it out towards the foot and balance mm. it. They balance quite well. But, I mean, that was 250 metres going downhill. Mm. And even, you know, when you hit the lake and had to turn up to where the boat was parked, yeah, yeah. that's when you, you thought, oh, Well, it's the whole boy. thing too, like, the the offset of not putting it on your back is the weight, the weight's not divided. Like, no. yeah, it's 70 kilos and there'll be lots of guys listening that do way heavier than in squats and whatever. But you put all the weight on one side of your body kink yeah. your body up to straighten up and then try and walk down through, a, you know, the buckbrush, which is chest height. Mm. And, you know, the, the moose have sort of Rocks. pogged up all the ground. So it's like walking through what was a wet cow farm and now it's dried out. And yeah. it's all, it's just pretty, even that's pretty hard going. Well, even the, the meat itself, because it's not set yet, it's mm. still pretty jelly. So mm. it'll shift on you. Like you've got that whole, what would be the equivalent of a rump on a cattle beast hanging over the edge there and that bastard shifts back and forward and it can really throw you off balance and at that point you've made such an effort to keep everything clean (laughs) like immaculately clean so if you go down you're just going to ruin all that hard work so you really got to concentrate yeah you do but with four guys pretty relatively happened pretty quick yeah the last load that i did with the the antlers the cape and the head all together was that just about blew my eye ring that was heavy enough yeah um, that, yeah, we made the decision to do the head skin back at camp. Which Dad thought we'd just whip it off the skull, she'll be yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. That, that's, that, that's, well, there was a wee incident between night. A and B. Oh, yeah. What's that? We loaded up the dinghy. So we oh, threw yeah. That, oh, yeah, the moose, yeah. There was a story the, the that Matthew was sort of halfway Matthew's trying out to of the sort water, of skim just, over that. Yeah, yeah. yeah and so 
obviously the heavy, so all the moose just, moose just kind of got thrown to the easiest which was the front. area on the boat. We weren't really thinking the, the front, really. which was also the bit that was landlocked, because once we decided we were actually going to push the boat out, that was an issue in itself. <laughs> so, so sort of balls around with that. And Matthew drew the straw, decided to go whatever, so he was going to take the boat back to camp. And there was there was not a lot of wiggle room at the front of the boat, like it was nose down. It was like sports yeah, nose down. Sort of I'm car. surprised the prop was in the water. Yeah, at all. yeah, it wasn't really well balanced. We think it had a whole moose in front of the front seat, which was not. We had a couple of bags. We were like, oh, let, 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 let oh yeah, throw that. Yeah, yeah, oh, quick. oh, if I got to walk back, I'm throwing my pack in. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just a little twelve foot dinghy, like yeah. not a big dinghy. It's got a six horse on it, like what, what? six horse that had the original. <laughs> feed us a lot there. Original fuel from probably two years ago, which would have been straight av gas. Yeah, with a bit of oil in it. But when we unpacked the boat when we got there, the it was. Still plugged in. It's still the hose, the tote yeah. tank hose was still plugged in. Been sitting under there at forty below for the last nine months. Yeah. You know, throw that on the back, fire it up, blow a bit of blue smoke. She'll be right. And Jack had bought the boat up, and he sort of said to me, us when he got up to the boat, he said the boat's not running great. Like it's it doesn't go so good. You got to keep the revs on. Yeah. And I was obviously getting tired at that point because when we finally got the boat pushed out, I was in a hurry to not go down the river because the river yeah, was rolling yeah. Yeah. and the wind was blowing. So I thought, okay, we'll get this buddy thing started. And I had choke in, choke out, trying to pull, choke, it starts going, chokes out, give it some revs, nothing happens. Put the choke in and, of course, it freaking fired up and just took off. And I just submarine dived in the front. Like I yeah. thought I was going to Water came out. over the front. Yeah, it was bad. And we were already front heavy, very front heavy, so... Certainly didn't look yeah. good from the shore. There's a few <laughs> from the shore. It didn't feel good in the boat. Another second, yeah. And on the video, it shows the old man was giving you some fairly straight out advice. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I thought you were just yahooing off because you were being a yahoo and you just buried it. And rather no, than going up in the nose like a boat normally does, it submarined, so. and we could see it all gone to the bottom of the lake. Well, I, thankfully, when it happened, I just like. Because the motor was running so shit, as soon as I backed off the revs, the motor died. But we still had enough forward momentum that we were submarining, and I still was had the wits about me to get like I literally held onto the motor and leaned over the back of the boat, which brought the nose up enough so we didn't the momentum didn't keep going down. So I was very lucky. It was a bit of a brain melt, to be fair. But yeah, um, context on this, like we say, we're actually quite fourteen hundred meters. It's basically. Zero to two degrees, and the lake's deep. Yeah. And the water temperature would be not high. Just, One or two degrees above yeah, freezing, yeah, no probably. Mm. So it wouldn't have been a great outcome. No, and as Dad said, everybody threw their rifles and packs and everything on the boat, so she would have been a fairly expensive whoopsie. Yeah. Mm. Um, but anyway, managed to dodge that bullet, um, and sort of because the motor was running so rough. I, I got back I, at the same time as us when we were walking. Yeah, yeah, and I couldn't give it any revs because we'd figured out what <laughs> happened if that happened. So I was literally driving along, and the motor would start to die. I'd have to pull out the choke, and then it would rev, and then I'd push the choke in, and it was literally like choke in, choke out, choke in, choke out, choke in, choke out the whole way home just to keep the motor idling at a speed that wouldn't submarine me. And because I was trying to steer the boat, and obviously with all that weight in the front, you had to keep it dead straight because we're going into a headwind, and if you'd turned, it would have dug in again. So I was having to sort of lean back behind me and do that with the choke, 
as well as keep the boat straight. So I was going very slow, but it was probably the worst thing for my back of the whole trip, including the sheep hunt that we did, was just that horrible angle that I was on the whole way back. <laughs> um, but anyway, all that certainly beats carrying it. Yeah, it Thank goodness does. for that boat. Yep, if we didn't have the boat, then uh, it would have been a bit more of a pack. I uh, I know the um, float plane can get in on that end because I've packed a moose down there before in years previous, but the trouble is we're having it that far from camp. Next morning we woke up and a pack of wolves had undone all of our good work and dragged all off into the buckbrush and eaten half it and peed on the rest. So it sort of ruined the the whole thing. So at that point, pretty motivated to get the meat that you've spent so much time prepping to a place where at least you can keep an eye on it um, and try and keep the predators off it until the plane turns up. Hmm. Which, luckily it did. Luckily they did keep away for that night or two. Mm. So I think we shot the moose at somewhere between 8 and 9, I don't know the exacts, but in the morning. And Matthew and, me and Matthew, Matthew and Karen, uh, we caught it a day just on twilight, sort of dark, we were sort of getting tired enough. Yeah, so it would be about 9 o'clock. Yeah, probably, yeah, somewhere between 8 and 9 p.m., um, and we still had a little bit of work to do on the skin, not a lot. I think we probably, another hour probably we would have knocked it out. But So it was a pretty big day, and that was yeah. two of us. That's a real eye-opener. You know, it's not just whip the head skin off and... Um, puff it in the freezer. Puff it in the freezer. <laughs> like, uh, that's what I thought when they talked about head skinning something. I thought that's what they were talking about. Um, but, you know, that might be 10% of the work. It was not even that, probably 5%. They just sat there for hours and hours and hours with their Havlons um, fleshing and turning everything inside out and the nose. And but now that you've actually noses, spent a couple of days in what they call the skinning shack, so yeah. the next process is. Mm. You can see how important that part of it is. Well, and how big a difference it makes when you do it well yeah. at the time. And if, you know, if I was ever in a situation where I was... Um, whipping off even just a head skin and doing the chuck it all in the freezer routine again, I'd be paying a whole lot more attention to when I was actually skinning the it off the animal to make sure you're not getting any flesh on it because it's an absolute pain in the butt taking that off any that's on there later on. Much easier, I would say, to do it on the animal. I was actually lying in bed thinking about it and I wondered whether with those goats you could actually punch them like you do a sheep back home. You can actually the the young if you don't shoot a real ancient billy, you can punch parts of it. Yeah, they have got a bit of a um, plate around the shoulder. Plate around so. the shoulder. Yeah. They especially mm. at this time of year it starts building up pre rut. Mm. Um, certainly the caribou, you can punch. Um, yeah, so hours and hours of prepping that head skin, um, turning it inside out, getting it all salted. Big job and. You know, I'm yet to know how I've feared um, in terms of I'm trying to run the gauntlet and bring the moose head complete in European form, which is no mean feat to handle and transport. And I've got through the first airline, so Air North, uh, from Whitehorse to Vancouver. Pretty used to seeing moose heads, so wasn't freaking them out. Um I'm picking Air New Zealand staff in Vancouver. Um, they're going to come sort of straight from 
Pilates or yoga or something and had a kombucha <laughs> for morning tea and they're going to take a look at a rough-ass looking kiwi with a moose head and they might have a bit of trouble getting it on. So we're trying to um, bring it home and that'll be worthy of just a quick mention later on to see whether I actually achieve that. Mm. The the goat, we felt we hadn't got far enough to risk it, uh, of bringing enough for a shoulder mount, enough skin for a shoulder mount, and it, it, although it had been salted hard out and we'd had a bit of a trial run at trying to dry it, um, probably because of the circumstances we were in when we got it, um, it, it had a bit too much flesh still on it. And yeah, we'd inquired with the inquired with inquired with MPI um, as to what their requirements were, and I don't know that I was quite close enough to stand there and argue it out if it came down to the uh, came down to that. So we've opted to leave the goat head and skin behind, and Matthew can get that tanned here, and we'll bring it home in that form, which will be a hell of a lot more likely to yeah. Get it there. So I really want to talk about your goat hunt, but um, I guess once we got your moose done and dusted, we actually went on a goat hunt slash scouting trip for Curran's upcoming sheep hunt, um, which was a bit of a change of pace compared to the moose hunting. Would that be a fair statement? Yeah, yeah. So we had a day sitting around uh, in the rain. We're pretty lucky, really, rain-wise, that there wasn't a lot. So we had a, a day sitting in the hut in the rain, and that certainly got us good and motivated for getting out and away on the uh, goat hunt so that was a matter of resorting all your gear trying to get it down you know as light as you can put your pack on and and start walking up and yeah went into that with a reasonable degree of apprehension having you know I could see how big the hills were and I wasn't too sure how far we were going um, fair to say that 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 walk in was way more pleasant than I thought it was going to be. We sort of worked up through a pass, so the the climb was gradual. It certainly wasn't brutal, but I now know that we had the also the major benefit of being on an old horse trail, which um, you know made the going pretty easy, really. And we we walked on up into a saddle and got up good and high and a campsite that's been used before and set up the tents and. Had a bit of a glass that evening, didn't we? Still had enough time left to do some glassing. Identified that there were certainly goats about, albeit sort of standing on sheer cliffs about 5k away, but um, we did actually manage to see some goats and went to bed and got up the next day with high hopes of uh, nailing one. Matthew had sort of a pet area that we had shot goats with clients before, so we headed off to that. And Again, a lot of glassing, a lot of looking. In that area, there were a heap of nannies and kids. So every goat that seemed to appear out of the trees or out of the rocks, I'd get all excited and then up behind it would come a kid. So that was a little bit um, frustrating, but we'd more or less given up. And in the end, Matthew and I were actually backtracking back over a bit of country. We'd already been over to just having it another squiz over the side and um, we found a billy held up on a sheer rock face 
What range was he? At that stage, he was about 420. Yeah, 420. Yeah, so we set up and locked the demon. You know, I had certainly had him in the scope at 420. Um, But we made the decision there not to shoot him. It wasn't quite what we were looking for, but also where he was was likely to end in tears um, in terms of recovery. So... At that point we flagged it, and I was quite happy. I mean, when I came over, I wasn't actually expecting to have a mountain goat tag. Ended up with a moose tag, a mountain goat tag, and a wolf tag. Um, So I was just happy to have got up there and seen how how it worked and what it involved getting one, and Matthew had a whole heap of good yarns of other hunts up there that had gone wrong, and guys spend the night out in the snow, and, you know, and you could sort of, basically see how that could quite easily happen just because of the scope and the size of everywhere you have to friggin' walk. So we headed back to camp and at that point the weather sort of started to turn so morale was a bit low because we'd looked all day for a a goat, hadn't actually got one but um, had certainly seen a fair bit but the weather came in and the thought of sort of getting into the tent and the crap weather, we had a quick look at the inreach at the forecast and it wasn't good so we decided to pack up and boost it back to the cabin so as a result of that we walked 22k that day which certainly um, I'd say Google Earth will better pick up the the silver streak of my ring piece dragging the last piece um, (laughs) down to the hut and before the moment thing (laughs) yeah I can't say I was in great and in fairness you know i my 60 years had um, allowed me to pack fairly lightly. I was fairly wily in that department, and um, certainly Matthew and Kieran were probably carrying twice the weight, which fortunately slowed him up a bit. But yeah, now we got back, and that was a that was a great. You know, if it had ended there and I hadn't got a goat, I would have been totally happy that I'd been and had a look and seen what it involved to actually commit to getting a stonker. Uh, I can see you need several days probably if you if you're really committed to getting a good one it's going to involve identifying it getting halfway up to it or near it and then surging again i would think well that's i mean that's the simplest form why the hunts are 10 to 14 days yeah nobody knows where the animals are everything's 100 percent wild you've got legalities to meet and then you've got environment be it position of the animals or whether to to balance out as well so mm. And I mean, we always knew that a goat there is always a little bit of an outside shot. I mean, there's shitloads of goats there, but to do it from the camp with a backpack, the trouble is you've got to climb up over the pass and then the goats themselves, the main population of them, are they're either way across the other side of the river, which would include, include a, probably another 1,500 metre climb up on the other side and then back, which is probably a two or three day mission with a dead goat on your back. Very, very difficult and challenging. Or you've got to drop way down into the creek, into the river, and the goats themselves down there are lower than the campers on the other side of the pass. So you've got a real big push to come all the way back up, under load, to pick up camp, to go under. So like Dad said, he wasn't expecting to have a goat tag, so we thought we'd just go and roll the dice. And if you don't find a big one on you know, one of seven or eight different bluff systems that are at a good height, then you're kind of out of options. So it was important for me... You know, in terms of the whole grand scheme of the hunt, I had sort of two goals on going up there for that night was firstly to show Dad and Jack what it looked like in the Alpine. 
So get up out of the timber above where we were camping for moose and just show them what the mountain hunting involved. You know, the day-to-day climbing up there with a camp, hunting with a lighter backpack during the day, back to camp. That whole process is very similar to what we do with sheep hunting. It's just more extended and long-term process. So, you know, we got up there and we saw a caribou, which you wouldn't have seen. Mm. I mean, we'd already seen a grizzly at that point. Yeah. Um, yeah, we saw sheep. Yeah, we saw goats. Oh yeah, it was great. We so saw... it was an awesome. Also, awesome for, for people that have listened to a few of our podcasts and listened to the last one that had Ross on it, you probably now, I guess, in part, see where the hunting Matt and Kern have done in Canada related to the hunting mm. we did in Central Targa. Like we kind of took yeah. that same format back to Central Targa, which at that point was. Very contrasting anything you'd seen before. Yeah, animal so, animal selection, heaps of glassing. Yeah, sitting, just yeah, sitting on your bum and letting the yeah. optics do the walking. Yeah, yeah. definitely. See so where that's coming from now. Yeah, so that was my first sort of tick box, and I think Dad particularly enjoyed it. My little brother did make the comment at one point: um, "Why would anyone?" pay to do this he's not a he's certainly not it was a bit more flavoursome than that I thought yeah yeah well (laughs) it was pretty strong at that point he crawled out of the tent he slept in the tent with Curran and he sort of he didn't have a proper thermo rest in his defence we just made him he does love sleep and he's he's a high achiever and that's high achiever on the sleep front so he came out and his his opinion of the sleeping conditions was um, not high. I don't think he was going to stay the second night, regardless. No, no, he no. was always going home. <laughs> oh, he made the comment the next day. We probably should have stayed up there because the weather forecast was wrong. By the way, we woke up the next morning. It's probably the best morning we had. Yeah. Uh, not a cloud in the sky and a hard, hard right. frost. Yeah, weather forecast. Mm. No. But anyway, that was my first sort of tick box. My second tick box was to get a look at the country that Curran and I were intending to hunt for stone sheep because it had been. You know, the last time I was in there was 2015, so, and I was never sheep hunting there, so you're looking at it with a completely different lens when you're trying to figure out what is sheep habitat versus what is goat habitat. Well, and, as an outfit, they've never hunted sheep there in 20 years. Yeah, exactly, and they've never hunted sheep there in 20 years, so there's no living memory of where the sheep should be, which makes it, you know, you're starting from scratch, which, to be fair, adds to the hunt, but it also puts you behind probably two or three days to figure out what's going on. Mm. And when we packed up that camp, we came up over the pass and we were just starting to head down out of the alpine and we looked across and there was a big group of um, ewes and lambs, stone sheep, heading up over another pass that we'd sort of talked about in passing but hadn't really deeply considered. So that experience, A, you got Jack and Dad the opportunity to see some sheep, albeit ewes and lambs, no rams amongst them. Two young ones. Oh, two young ones, sort of mm-hmm. banana horns. Um, but it also got me and Curran got the juices flowing in terms of where we might um, attack in a couple of days. Well, yeah, and one of the interesting things, like we were probably two and a half hours, three hours from dark. That was a, roughly where we yeah. sat. I can't yeah, remember. It was about yeah. five thirty. And the, mm. the sheep were already leaving, I guess, their feed and their grazing. Yeah, they're already they were heading back the up into the rocks. Yeah. And, you know, comparative to what we do in New Zealand, like you sort of, that magic hour is that last hour. We were like, we, we were... Well just catching that. the tail end of it. Yeah. Mm. And, um, yeah, I guess without trying to miss any details of what actually happened, the next day we camped back up there, Matthew and myself, and um, the wolves came through the valley, yeah, like very dramatically. And it, you know, validated what we had thought the reasoning behind them leaving the valley so early in the evening was 
and it's purely to get themselves out of the danger zone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I mean, we went back down, spent the night in, in camp. Um, Dad, we still had the moose sitting on the beach at that point, so the um, plane came in. No, the moose had gone, no, hadn't moose it? Gone. Moose had already gone. gone. Yeah. yeah. So we we back into Bill camp. Dropped the line. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> that's we we have to mention that. That is, Bill is um, a very experienced pilot for a beaver. He, I think he's, he's been up flying over, fifty years. Flying fifty years. So he had well over. I heard someone comment the other day, well over forty thousand hours in a beaver, which yeah. would be in the top probably ten of anyone on the planet currently. I would say. Mm. Um, particularly well maybe not just pure hours but certainly mountain flying that's mm. and that's a different type of flying anyone who's been in the mountains and that stuff on a floats will understand what i'm talking about but very experienced flyer you get into a get into the beaver with him and he gives you all his quote end quote headsets which are actually a pair of 3m um <laughs> Grade three, five earmuffs, earmuffs <laughs> um which means there's no mouthpieces so he doesn't have to talk to anyone while he's flying and then he flies and he looks out the window and doesn't say much. Bill doesn't say much, period. Yeah. And so we always try and sort of get a laugh out of him every time he turns up. And I'm sure every guide and wrangler does exactly the same thing when he turns up on a dock and he sort of keeps it, keeps it pretty, plays his cards pretty close to his chest. And at one point he looks up at, it was either me and Curran and reads a hat. We're Who are loading? Yeah, we're loading moose. And he looks at me and he says, you know what? An educated hunter wouldn't shoot a moose. <laughs> Just deadpan, right? Yeah. And <laughs> we just fell off the floats laughing. Like he, He's really got a point. It's, uh, as soon as you pull Good the trigger, it's all work. <laughs> but anyway, the moose had gone the previous day, so we called, called in and um, the decision was made. Dad and Jack decided to head down to where my little brother had been working on a wee building project. Um, and so they flew down to a lower lake, um, and left me and Curran alone. And so at that point, me and Curran basically just looked at each other and said, right, I guess we may as well head back up there. So we repacked all our gear, put in a bunch more food, split the split the load and turned our noses back up the hill mm. and walked all the way back up to the top of the pass where we'd seen the sheep the previous evening yep. and camped there for the night. Um, and that sort of kicked off, I guess, the next chapter for me and Curran, which was our sheep hunt. Mm, certainly did. Um, so we got back up to their basin and didn't see any sheep. Yeah, they were all gone. They were they had gone. Um, and like I said, we oh, we saw one good bull moose up there. Um, and then as we sort of got to sleeping or just just on sleeping, the wolves, the wolves entered the valley, and um, they really worked. It's it sort of I guess to put some context on it, it was like a almost like a hanging basin slash saddle on a on a main ridge and um the wolves actually deliberately moved right around that basin howling up speaking to each other and obviously pushing or you know identifying prey animals that they could um take advantage of so and the last time i heard them really speak up and get to it was in the exact location i saw the moose so yeah i imagine he was pucking up pretty hard um it's nothing like not being in that up. just in that drifting off to sleep stage of sleep you know where anybody pugs you you get a fright you feel mm. like you're falling 
was just in that stage when they parked up the first time up behind well, us. They were really chattering. It wasn't howling like no. They like sort of a couple long. started howling and then they all started chattering. It was almost like coyotes. There's a pretty distinct difference between the two, but there's something in the back of your mind and your lizard brain that sort of tells you that perhaps lying on the side of a mountain and amongst that noise isn't the smartest thing to be doing. Well, Funnily we enough, were, I went back to that sleep. We were three <laughs> three meters from the game trail that had bear scat on it. You know, yeah, bear prints on the tray. But um, yeah, so yeah, and then the plan was to get up in the morning, head around that hanging basin, head up through the saddle, and, and essentially see what the country offered. Yeah, because nobody, well, neither of us and nobody we knew had been in there yet. Yeah. So and that took a fair bit. It was a bit of a bit of a slog up there. So I guess to give context, because we don't need to keep going back to it, but the the sheep hunt. Found itself between eighteen hundred and two thousand two hundred meters. Yeah, that was about where we sat. Uh, so we were quite high, and I guess the weather wasn't great. It shouldn't have been in worse weather, but the one th- the the weather element that really probably impacted us the most was the wind, and the fact that we just couldn't look in the niggly places we needed to look to find rams. Nothing was still enough. Yeah, and th- so you, in terms of your optics, just the pure strength of the wind was an issue. But also I think what happened was when the wind's that cold, the animals tuck up into corners and in little dips and basins and they go lower into the mm. buckbrush and there's little hidden plateaus and shelves that you can't see unless you're right on top of them. And they get in those spots and little holes and they sit there out of the wind and it's warm and toasty for them. Mm. And meanwhile, Matt and Curran are at 2,000 metres and are howling northerly, trying to get a spotting scope to sit on a tripod yeah. and not blow over. And identify an animal that's hard enough to find on a good day. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it just blows you away. Like we found, when we started finding sheep, when they're ass away from you standing up feeding, they're easy to see because they've got a white ass with a black mm-hmm. tail and it stands and is round. So it stands out. Once your eyes are trained to it, it does stand out. If that animal spins 180 degrees and starts facing you, they completely disappear, mm. particularly if they're at distance because they're a, they're a, a sort of a smoky grey to black colour, which is exactly the same colour as all of the rocks. Mm. And they spend a lot of time grazing in between the rocks and sitting in the rocks and standing in the rocks. So when they, they're bedded, they're, obviously their ass is covered as well. So Yeah, when they're bedded down, they look like a rock. Mm. So 80% of sheep hunting yeah. is trying to... Looking at sheep I was just rocks. trying to find a sheep, which was, yeah. And and to give you a little bit on that, like, so, you know, two of us with sheep experience, not, you know, not amazing amounts or, you know, comparative amounts to other people, but we found some rams on the second or third day. And so we, I, you know, we were, we were elevated above them at this point, so... And we watched them enough to to identify three different rams that were all illegal rams at this point. They were somewhere between halves and three quarter curl type sheep. So, and we probably give it a good hour, an hour and a half of just watching and making sure that was what it was, you know. And so we carried on. The next day, from a different viewpoint, we looked down at those same three sheep, and they were now six rams. So, and they were slightly better like still illegal rams but getting closer again then the next morning <laughs> another ram was coming around to them as well 
So it ended up with seven in the same basin. Yeah. Um, and again, this that was probably the one that was closest to legal. Um, if you use some trick photography and look at him from a certain angle, you can yeah, almost convince yourself. Yeah. But when you got a good look at him, he was still probably a good inch short. Yeah. So and then and and just this is this I guess what I'm saying is purely just to give you some an idea of how it is trying to find these things. The next morning, which was our last morning coming out of that saddle down to the other creek towards camp, I guess, we found another ram in there. Yeah. So at this point, what was a band of three rams was now a band of eight rams. And it was like a, the, I guess the basin, the terrace they were on. Like it wasn't a massive amount of ground. No, but it had all the boxes for them. Oh, oh, yeah, it was a, it was a perfect habitat. But what I, what I mean is, I guess to, to summarise that, for our entire trip due to the wind, we were we were seeing the sheep that were there to be seen, but we weren't seeing the sheep that you had to find. Yeah. You know, and that that's probably what got us in the end. You know, I feel like a bit more time, based on a, few, a bit of that time being nicer weather. Yeah, exactly. Um would have allowed us to just look in those nook and crannies because the sheep were there like you know as we climbed shale faces you know got up around that 2000 meter mark like we actually ended up just zigzagging from sheep bed to sheep bed yeah. at different places it was the easiest way to climb that stuff yeah and we'd get into you know you couldn't argue there was, she- there was sheep sign everywhere the big basins and you yeah. know like and that one hill at the end of the um the sort of the mountain system we're looking at at the end, we saw what was it three or four rams about down five there. Five rams down there, and in our defence, like it was windy and shitty, but we spotted those. I just finger drew it out on my topo map. It's eight kilometres from where we were sitting. Yeah. So we picked them up eight k's away, and we were reasonably confident, confident up to agree of probably ninety percent that none of them were legal. But that whole we only caught a glimpse of them for maybe an hour on one day mm. and they disappeared around the corner out of the wind. And that was a big bit of real estate that we never really got to well, look at Well, as properly. we, I guess, went down the, the ridge we were on, became very apparent because from where we were, it almost looked like an edge or a cutoff on the edge of the spur, but it wasn't. It's an, it's an entirely rounded knob and, and having, and, and whether it's accurate or not, like having actually lived through the fact that from three rams we got to eight rams, at half the distance, the, the the mind plays a bit of game on you. Like, were the five rams we saw there the only five rams we saw? Were, were there more rams there? Yeah. You know, so. And when you said, when we were sort of getting to the point where we were running out of time and we had to, you know, it was really important to us because, you know, the outfitters, Darwin and Wendy, are, you know, and their daughters, Tiffany and Trina, are very good friends of me and Curran. Um Trina was out of the country, unfortunately, but Tiffany was in camp, and it was really important for us to spend some quality time with them back at camp. So me and Curran were sort of playing a, a a dangerous game of pushing the sheep hunt out as far as we could, but also um, being pretty realistic with the weather forecast, which had well, massive the weather forecast changed it in the end. Yeah, which had snow and nastiness in it mildly wintry Wild, mildly wintry con- <laughs> with conditions <laughs> and we're sitting up there and it was blowing like a 80 kilometer an hour northerly with ice in it and we're thinking oh yeah mildly winterly i'd love well to we see were it. essentially in the cloud or above the cloud and so we couldn't see the lake and i guess not only you know visiting with with our friends 
we needed to get back with a window of time enough to allow us to get back to the with for another flight back to the rental car. Yeah. Which then led to flights to New Zealand and everything like that. So yeah, we basically ended up having to. You need time on your side. No doubt yeah, about we ended up probably all said and done. We could have hunted for two more days. Yeah, but, but it's just not you worth don't the rest. Know those sorts of things. Yeah, um, so if we'd had more time and some good weather, then potentially we might have found one. But at the end of the day, we came home at the end of that sheep hunt. Certainly, I know I was slightly lighter, um, and you know I thoroughly enjoy it. Like I enjoy the process. Oh, you can't, you can't not. Well. If it's your thing, you can't not enjoy a sheep. Don't know Jack would enjoy it, mate. But for sure, I think the thing I think <laughs> we shook hands at the end of it, man. I said it was a really good hunt. Just wasn't great for me. Yeah. And I, no, there was no, there was not anything really negative in that. It's just, I don't know. It's hard. I had, I had really backed this to be my sheep trip. Well, it's a long way to come from New Zealand, man. And even though we're getting at it, at literally at mates' rates. It's still, it's not cheap. Like, no, 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 no. Yeah. You know, if you wanted to just go out and walk around a hill for five well, days. Well, that's one of the comments I made, central. wasn't it? I've done cheaper walks in New Zealand. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yeah. But no, whatever. I can't take it back. And yeah, we got some good photos. And even, even, you know, Wendy, the, the outfitter's wife and our friend, you know, like having to talk to her about it and in part making plans for the future. <laughs> um, you know, she said, that's just how it is. Ross whacked and stacked it, and you got some good memories. Mm. And that's yeah, pretty and, much as blunt And as to be honest, and it probably goes down like a cold cup of sick at the moment, Curran, but, you know, stone sheep, if you're going to do it the way that we want to do it, which yeah. is pure backpack, hunting properly, yeah. unassisted other than our own nous and experience, yeah. then, you know, we could have got a ram. Like, we were in the right area. We were seeing rams. We were seeing sheep. It could have happened. Yeah. didn't happen. You know, it's part of the allure of stone sheep because you oh, knew when coming into this that there was a yeah, chance yeah. you wouldn't get one, and it was a good chance you wouldn't get one. You always yeah. want to. Well, it was, it was literally the highest odds were on failure. Yeah. Nobody mm. sheep hunted there for 20 years. Yeah. Um, you know, and there's a reason people don't sheep, place, hunt, sheep hunt places. Yeah, because there's a lot better places to mm. go, but yeah. but still, I don't know. It's where all my passion sits, so it's never going to be an easy. Be that much sweeter when it happens. Well, that's it. You know, like back to good old pig hunting reference. Like we always just sort of say, "Well, now we're whatever six days closer to the big one." Yeah. Like it's put it this way: if you'd got your stone sheep here, I don't think we would have hunted together in Canada again for a long time. We no, still might be a wee way off, yeah. but you just think if we do manage to get our stars to align again and come and do it again, that's yeah, yeah, that's yeah. potentially fourteen days well, of hunting in Canada said. that we never would have got. It's what my wife if said. If you pulled the trigger this time, yeah, my, my wife thankfully is very understanding. And, you know, she said, "Oh, you sound a bit deflated." And I was like, "Well, it's not how I had it pictured in my head. It's not how I, I think I, my wording was. It's not how I had planned my dream hunt." She said, "Maybe this one wasn't your dream hunt then." Yeah. Which so it's pretty fair. Pretty wise. Yeah. So anyway, that was what me and Curran were up to. And meanwhile, Dad flew down to a lower lake and um, got sort of accustomed to the scenery down there and got got a green light. He still had a goat tag. And one of our, um, I guess, Ultimate OE old boys, he's in his second year now. Yep. 
Um, was he in his third year? No, no second year. Second year. Uh, he was just happened to be hanging around the camp and didn't have a client, so he got the. He wasn't really hanging around. He's working his ass off on the building. Yeah, that's yeah. hanging around in, in outfitting terms. Yeah, yeah. If you're a hunting guide, that's hanging around until somebody gives you a real job and you can go hunting. Mm-hmm. So got the green light and took Dad and Jack on a one on a, day on a one day goat assault. Mm. Yeah. So um, yeah, great to get that green light and. Um, you know, really grateful to Devon for um, agreeing to take us. And, you know, three Kiwis headed off down the lake. Um, once Darwin had said, yeah, yeah, take a day and go for it. Um, that was later in the day. So we threw the boat in the lake and Devon and Jack and I headed down the lake and uh, did some glassing um, and saw quite a few goats from the lake a long long way up but probably four or five different areas were holding goats so given that we only had a 12 hour window the following day from dawn to dark uh, we we honed in on a group of four that looked like there may be a couple of billies in there uh, and thought well if they're there tomorrow that's what we'll go for so Yep, up early and, and down the lake again, glassing, went further down the lake so that we could sort of get a better look at them. They were still there, and there were certainly two billies amongst them. They um, certainly weren't burning crockets, but they had nuts, which is all I was worried about. Um, and, and th- I guess, thankfully, goat is one of the species where there's a little bit more leniency on the legalities. Right, yeah. You can, you can legally shoot a female... You cannot legally shoot anything out of a family group. Mm. So basically, if it's got a kid in amongst those four groups, yeah. which I assume they didn't, no, um, you can't hunt them. And there so. may have been four males. It may have been four females. You, 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 at that distance, you're really just um, looking at the horn shape and the general body size, but it's certainly not a pure science from that range. So you take the risk climbing up. In the meantime, while we were looking at that, we saw a single animal on its own, which is generally um, more of an indicator that could well be a male, um, on a different different hill, mountain, uh, sitting on his own, and got enough of the um, spotting scope on him to think, well, yep, okay, he's worth a crack. So we decided, all or nothing, we're going to go for that one, even though he was quite a bit higher than the four. You know, I knew it was up there. You could sort of see that it was up there. Um, But I guess the thing that I didn't know, uh, having never done it before, was the the degree of the slope heading up. So we started from the lake and punched up through the trees and then we had to break the trees, get into the um, big rock slides and then he was above the rock slides on the rocky bluffs. So I'd sort of looked at it and thought, okay, if I get above those trees, you know, it's all good. Um, We punched off and um, Devin sort of said, well, you know, yell out if you need a breather. Well, of course, you're not going to do that. So um, away we went. Uh, We eventually had our first stop and I was fair blown. By the time we got to our second stop, I was sort of into perhaps I'll have a chunder. Um, (laughs) And Jack, I could tell by the way he was looking at me, was thinking, oh, well, some of the old man's going to have a heart attack on the side of the hill, but 
you know, you all know out there that it's those first couple of punches that hurt the most, and then once you get your lungs a bit, you're away. And so we just decided, I just said, look, let's stop more often and stop less because my recovery was all right. And so we just punch a bit, stop, punch a bit, stop, and just kept grinding away. And um, Devon had reckoned it might take us three hours to get up to the gate, um, just straight up. I think we did about seven or 800 metres vertical. Um, and... We got up there in two, so that was good. Once we broke the trees, uh, you know, morale lifted, and all the way up we were stopping and getting a glimpse through and seeing him, and he was still just sitting there perched out on the end, so that was all good, kept us going. We finally got out of the trees, got up into the gravelly stuff, and the weather turned for the worst big time, so one of the squalls sort of came through, and the temperature about halved, and... It was nasty, and the wind really picked up, just cut through you, and the goat disappeared. We consoled ourselves with the thought that perhaps it was because we were higher in the angle we were on. He was just over the lip, and we couldn't quite see him, but deep down I sort of thought, you know, don't matter don't matter what side of the world you're on, if an animal's sitting out in the friggin' freezing cold, and there's an option, um, they'll move, and that's exactly what he had done. So that last push was pretty hard because we couldn't see him and it was longer than I thought from the bottom the stretch the trees looked like they were probably three quarters of the way up in reality they would be lucky if they were two thirds so it was another big push out in the open in the cold got there sure enough could see where he'd been sitting but he was history and so we were faced with just a couple of little bluff systems round further where I said to Devin well if it was me that's where I'd be going to get out of the wind, we worked our way really slowly through those and didn't see them at all. So we'd pretty much given up. We were just sort of looking around the last corner and we were looking up into the bluffs and I glanced across a lot further and he had actually crossed another whole chasm and was sitting tucked in, you know, out of the wind right across another valley. So... <clears throat> He had us pinned. He was definitely saw us before we saw him, and it was nothing but open ground between us and him to get to him, and difficult open ground. We'd had to go right up, circumnavigate around the sort of the head of his gully. There's no way you could go down and across. You'd lose sight of him anyway. So we sat and we debated, and then that's when the old spotting spoke comes out, and there's a lot of talk about um, whether to take the shot or not. I got myself set up. Uh, they do everything in yards over there, so it was 450 yards, he reckoned. Um, but it wasn't a, offering a great shot. He was straight on, sitting down, with a bit of a ledge in front of him, clear view of his head, and probably about 150 to 200 mil of chest. Um, my guide wasn't too partial on the shot, um, <laughs> I'd be fair to say. I kept saying, well, you know, I can hold it. By the way, I'd borrowed a rifle that I'd never shot before, and um, so that was all a bit of a worry, but it was a um, 270 short mag. So we sat there and um, debated it, really, and in the end I made the suggestion, let's send Jack off up into the head of the valley, walking, and it'll do one of two things. 
or one of three things, either nothing, or he might stand up and offer me a better shot, or he might even just turn his head and follow Jack up the valley and open up his shoulder a bit more. So that's what we decided to do, and um, sure enough, he did follow Jack round with his head, um, but unfortunately, just as I squeezed off, he looked back. <laughs> Um, and thank goodness that first shot, you know, I was really, really well set up and waiting for it. Um, and uh, we were in a howling gale too, just by the way, I forgot to mention that, going up the valley, absolute howling gale. And I think the wind just dropped right as I shot, and that first shot um, sort of drilled him through the end of the nose, basically. Um, <laughs> well, not basically, it did. Um but into the chest. But yeah, yeah, enough into the chest and enough to um change his outlook on the situation and he stood up and when he stood up I pinned him pretty well. He never moved from that spot. Um we walked round and uh Jack stayed keeping an eye on it and yeah, job done. Mm-hmm. So well, you, you finished him right at the end with your oh, last right, bullet. Oh with my last yeah, sorry, yeah. I'd, and I'd, I hadn't taken enough bullets. Because um, I was very conscious of the weight, and so I only actually had one bullet left. And as we walked round, we weren't a hundred percent sure whether he was totally down and out. And all everyone was talking about was how tough these things are and how they can take the punishment. They just get up and go. So I was just paranoid that he was going to get up and go. And Devin, we one stage we closed the gap. We could still see him at about two fifty. He said. Do you want to put that last one into him? And I said, no way. <laughs> I'm saving it and making it count. Um, yeah, so I snuck right up. I hit him again at about 20 metres, and it was certainly history then. Um, but <laughs> that then it dawned on me. Here we are on the side of the hill with all this work ahead of us again, all stinking of goat blood and meat and no bullets. So, us, you know, you get very bear conscious, and boy, there was a heap of bear sign when we were climbing up that hill. We were just climbing through it the whole way, and yeah, it'd be fair to say it was a fairly nervy cut up, and it took, again, a long time getting all that meat, loading it into the backpacks, covered in blood and head and skin, and heading on back down. Walk back down wasn't totally straightforward. We decided to just boost it in the direction of the boat. Um, And we got into a nasty bluff system, probably about a third of the way down. And ultimately hit one that we couldn't cross. We'd already done two fairly dodgy ones. So came back, backtracked through the dodgy one. Jack and I were certainly looking at each other thinking, boy, I hope we don't have to climb back up to that ridge to get out of here. Um... But Devin found a route down into a creek and, yep, we punched it down the creek. Fortunately, it was good going, hit the lake edge just on dark. And, yeah, all in all, for a day hunt, like light till dark, it was a hard, hard yakka, but very satisfying in terms of um, a result. Yeah, I mean, me and Curran got the inreach message, it would have been the last night on the hill, wouldn't it? That you'd gone out goat yeah, hunting, yeah. and we were pretty pretty chuffed, you know, because mm. we were thinking that you were going to be sort of sitting around twiddling your thumbs or being, being put to work doing 
you know, cutting wood or something. And yeah. it was just nice to know that you and Jack had got to go out and spend a day doing mm. it. Thoroughly enjoyed that too. But, uh, yeah, it was. Uh, it was a real bonus to get up and um, it's a representative billy. It's not a Boone and Crockett, that's for real, but it'll sit nicely against my representative tar on the wall and look pretty bloody good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, pretty awesome. So, I mean, that essentially concludes it i mean we at that point it's a hunt summary yeah me and curran came out and we sort of met back up at base camp and spent a little time visiting with the good friends and, mm. and the carries and eating um, some damn good jams and chums. oh i tell you what tiff if you're listening uh, there's a business there oh the jams mate what was that <laughs> uh, oh, i'm your promoter that? yeah that plum and port Plum and port, that well, was good. Well, the raspberry cherry one was pretty good too. Yeah, <laughs> and I'll tell you what, that chutney, the, uh, the apricot, apricot spicy apricot. chutney she bought out on the last day, she'd been holding out on me. Oh, it was good. I could have sat there and just ate the whole punnet. Yeah, it was no. so good. Yeah, 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 Tiff is certainly, you know. She's got that game sorted. Yeah, she's got the, the, the cooking stuff nailed. She's always sort of made the step up from camp cook to chef, really. Mm. Like it's, mm-hmm. like even the moose roast we had the other night was yeah, no. so mm. I can't make moose taste that bloody good. Yeah, that moose, I tell you what, it's good stuff. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I was very surprised. And given that you're shooting old manky males, I'd love to get into a yearling. <laughs> <laughs> Not literally. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, and same when we were up on the hill looking at the goats and the and the sheep. Those little ewes thinking, and nannies. Oh, those hoggets would be tasty. <laughs> And they would, because the funny thing is, like you, you know, you will never get to try it. But um, given the way the law is written, but even when we shoot a nine, ten-year-old ram that's been living at altitude in the mountains with the mm, worst winters so you can good. humanly fathom, like blisteringly cold, minus forty, fifty, sixty-degree winds, shit. Avoiding wolves every day of its life, grizzly bears. You shoot one of those, and it's it's unbelievably good. Mm. It just blows your mind that yeah. you know They're the tasty. F- there, yeah. yeah. You, you, oh, yeah. If you ate the equivalent ram off a farm at home, you'd you, you would you chew it for twenty minutes and spit it out twice the size tree. and white. Mm. But um, yeah, they're amazing how good tasty. I mean, a lot of those animals are great. I mean, mm. the, oh, they're all yeah. More I mean, the caribou is spectacular. Yeah. The you know, goats are mm, a bit more like goat and elk and moose. They were all yeah. top really, notch, really, really good. Yeah. yeah, I got to do a little bit of an excursion the last days and went and helped out another guide and cut away up a valley and took a um, an older gentleman out to see if we can get him a goat. And I was lucky enough; the elk are still rutting pretty hard, so um, got to jump on a horse and play cowboy for a day and. As we're riding out through the flats, too, got to see a couple of big bull elk doing their thing, you know, bugling antlers back and harping back to your original comment, Dad. And you know, I would be cool to do an elk. I think if we ever get the opportunity again, maybe that's where we'll head down that mm. track and, and try and get a big British Columbian elk. I mean, they're a real challenge. I mean, it's mm. the moose, I would have put our odds at probably 75, 80%. Yeah. If we did the same hunt for an elk, I'd probably put our odds at 40 to 50%. Um, if you're lucky, fairly generous, yeah. yeah. And the, the elk are harder too, because again, you've got the legal ramification. They have to be six on one side, and you're you're hunting them in areas where you just can't see. It's more 
is bush, basically. Well, that in the season duration is 10 days. Yeah, 10 day window. typically 10 day prior to the rut. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. things have got to play. There's a lot of things working against well. you. You've got to have your weather right. You've got to get lucky. You've got to get count and make sure you've got those six points because, again, the biggest bulls in those areas, purely because of the legalities, you know, they're giant five-by-fives. Mm. And when you see them, just the pure mass of their horns, you can't help but get excited. Very tempting to just give green light on something that's so old and mature looking, you think it must be six, and you'll get mm. up to it and it'll be five. Yeah. So it's a whole another kettle of fish, but, you know, you don't want to do it all at once because you've no reason to go back. Mm. Yeah, yeah, got to do something when you're 70. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's, there's it's certainly the only thing that's going to the biggest problem with that is your bag's going to be smaller again. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, if we do it at a base camp, it's a little bit more of a leisurely hunt yeah. compared to your goat hunt, I suspect. Mm. Not quite as brutal. Oh well, that's that's sort of the summary. I have to yeah. say it's uh, it was a pretty straight up and down summary. But yep, bit of repacking. Yep, bit of repacking. See if I can get this head in through customs. Yeah, yeah. Yep. In New Zealand, brace yourselves. That's my last, my last frontier. Yep. Or oh, and my moose meat. And yeah, Karen's trying to bring moose meat in. I don't know about the odds on that, but <laughs> we'll we're see. Roll. We're going to roll the cards. Mm. And then from here, Karen, you go straight to the Seeker Show, don't you? Bit of M, Bovis, yep. Moose. <laughs> <laughs> yep, no, so I land, I land, I guess, mid-morning on the Friday, and by the close of that day, hopefully I would have been to Taupo, set up our booth, and be fizzing for Saturday morning. Yeah, mate. Unfortunately, yeah. I think my time podcast has come out, it'll be done and dusted, but uh, yeah. if you see Curran, if you saw Curran sitting in the booth, looking a bit dishevelled and bit of a beer and coffee I can tell you that and drinking plenty of coffee there's a reason he's just uh, come directly out of the mountains in British Columbia from a 14 day moose sheep goat hunt yep anyway we'll shut it down yep you guys got to do some repacking we've got to find some lunch I'm we've got to put some pins yeah. in this g'day thanks for listening to the Educated Hunter podcast there are a number of ways you can connect with myself Matthew Gibson or my partner in crime Curran Island at the Educated Hunter and the hub for all of this is our website, theeducatedhunter.com. Our Instagram page is at theeducatedhunter. Our website also has a spot where you can sign up for our newsletter that comes once every two weeks and is full of relevant information about hunting in New Zealand and around the world. And lastly, you can search out any of the episodes that we've done in the past and find the show notes on that episode. Other than that, thanks very much for listening and I hope you're having a good day wherever you are and your next hunting adventure is not too far away.